this is indeed uh, a, a bit of a change in plans today. Uh, I was scheduled to preach next week, uh, and Brian was going to preach this week, but with, uh, with, with Becca suddenly not feeling well, she needed some attention, so we're just flipping. Um, and um, you know, it reminds me of a story um, I heard years ago. Uh, uh, a, a minister was filling in in a small, out-of-the-way country church, uh, and he knew that the people in the church were uh, not well-educated. They might not have uh, extensive vocabularies. And so he said, you know, I'm here today as a substitute. Now, let me explain what a substitute is. Let's say that you have uh, a window at home, and, and the pane of, of glass is broken, and you don't have uh, another pane of glass, so you put in a piece of cardboard. Well, that cardboard is a substitute. And so he preached a sermon, and afterwards he was greeted, and someone said, you know, I don't think you're a substitute. I think you're a real pain. <laughs> so anyway, uh, we'll see. Uh, I, I'm, I'm great, grateful to be with you. So this will be a little out of sequence. We're not going to have the slides that we would normally, uh, normally have, uh, normally expect. But I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 7, uh, which will be our text uh, for, for today. Uh, this will be found on page 503. In, uh, in the Pew Bibles, uh, Luke chapter 7, and we're going to uh, read beginning with verse 11 to verse 17. Soon afterwards, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. This is the word of God. Uh, pray with me briefly. Father, we thank you for this extraordinary account of what our Lord Jesus did when he walked among us. And we confess to you our fear, our uncertainty, as we contemplate our, our weakness and our mortality. But we ask in this hour that you would teach us to rely upon your grace, your faithfulness, your creative and recreative power that makes all things new and that makes us alive again now and forever. In the name of Jesus, amen. This is an amazing, extraordinary story that we're reading. A woman who is already a widow, who is acquainted with grief, who is, to put it lightly, having a difficult life. Because in this time and place, uh, to, to be a widow meant to be at, at, the, uh, at, at the mercy of other people. She has one son. 
who is responsible for her. And even though the, the English Standard Version that, that we read here in our worship services says that this was a man who had died, the original language text gives us no clue as to how old this son is. He may have been 30 or he may have been three. But he was her only son. And so he was her only hope of support in that world. There, were, there would be other relatives, but you know how they are. You know how they don't always step up to their responsibilities. But leave all that aside. Leave aside the, the questions of how she's going to make it in the world. One of the greatest tragedies of life is, as I'm doubtless many here today would know, when a parent loses a child. But Jesus raises him from the dead. Jesus gives him new life. Before we think about what Jesus does, though, I, I want to take the time to do something which has been important in my own faith development. And that's to talk about something that I hate, that I loathe. And that it comes to my life again and again. It wears me down. It makes me feel sick. It makes my heart ache. It strikes fear in me. I want to avoid it. I want to ignore it. I want to pretend that it doesn't touch me. But it touches me again and again, and I know the same is true for you. And of course, I'm talking about death. Death stalks us. I'm tired of going to funerals. I've reached a stage of my life where I go to a lot of funerals. My friends are losing their loved ones one by one. A friend loses his wife to cancer while their four children are still young. A friend loses her daughter, barely a young adult, to a bipolar condition that leads her in despair to take her own life. A friend loses his aged father to Alzheimer's, a death by agonizingly slow degrees. A friend loses his brother, who is also a husband and father, in a skydiving accident that leaves his body uh, unrecognizable. A friend loses a young son to a rare genetic disorder after months and months of anguish in the hospital. A friend loses a dear cousin as a military casualty. I'm haunted by their tears. I imagine the grief in their hearts, and it hurts me so that I want to imagine it no more. My empathy is worn out. I'm tired of being an aging man who goes to funerals. Death is horrible, and I hate it. And I know you do too. And I dread the way it enters my own life. My father-in-law was a good and godly man. And 25 years ago, uh, at the age of 53, he was in a wasting condition that led to his death because of pancreatic cancer. My grandfather was a vigorous gentleman, advanced in years well beyond threescore and ten, full of warmth and wisdom and proudly independent. He went through the indignity of a debilitating stroke that let, left him without speech and unable to digest his food. And he died when I was thousands of miles away. My grandmother faced every challenge with a dignity and gentleness that shaped and nurtured me as I grew up. She suffered a final crisis that was mercifully short. And she was old and full of years, but she's gone too. And again, I was thousands of miles away when she died. And I haven't been able to see her or talk to her in years. I watched my own parents uh, live together in, deep into old age. They were married for 70 and a half years, which is a remarkable thing. But they 
came to a point where they lived mostly to spare each other the grief of loss. And I witnessed as, as their lives slipped away, one after the other. And I can't talk to them anymore. And I miss that. I miss that deeply. And I know one day I will face that same awful trial myself of watching my own best friend, my wife, as her life slips away or of finding her cold beside me. Or perhaps she will face that trial with my death. I certainly know that I am nearer death than I have ever been before because I wear one of these watches that tells me. <laughs> when I was 25, I was going to stay fit and young and live forever. Just, you can only laugh at yourself. You can only laugh at yourself. I live with the fear that one day before I die, a police officer will come to our door and ask us, are you John and Tammy Weatherly? We have bad news. And it will be about one of our adult children. And as many of you know, we live with the reality that our dear daughter-in-law faces a serious illness. I, I dread grief. I don't like it. I have tasted it, not as much as many, not nearly as much as some of you. I know that. But I dread it. I hate it, and I don't want to taste it again. I understand what the Scottish preacher Arthur John Gossip said in the first sermon that he preached after the sudden death of his wife. I can tell you where death's sting lies. It's in the constant missing of what used to be always here, the bitter grudging every second of the dear body to the senseless earth, the terrible insecurity, for one is never safe, safe. anything, nothing, and the old overwhelming pain comes rushing back. I hate death, and I can't simply accept it. I can't resign myself to it. I hate death because life is so sweet. And I hope you understand that as we say this. I love life. I love the people who share my life. I look forward to being with you because we share life together, even as we're just getting to know you and you getting to know us. I want to walk in the sunshine or in the cool rain or even in the snow and ice. That's why we moved back to the Midwest. We like the snow and ice. I want to savor a grapefruit in the morning or a slice of roast beef, or some of those amazing French fries that they sell at so many places today. We live, ladies and gentlemen, in the golden age of the French fry. What a time to be alive. What a time to be alive. I want to play with my dog. I want to cut the grass. I want to do the dishes. Yes, I do. Okay. I want to listen to new music and read new stories and play new games. I want to talk and laugh and share homemade ice cream with my friends and family in the shade of a tree in the backyard. Life is so sweet, I don't ever want it to end. That's why I hate death. That's why ancient people saw death as a monster or a demon, and that's why you hate death too. Why does life have to end? Why is it appointed to humans once to die? Why does it get taken away suddenly or slowly from the old or the young or the in-between? If this were my world, there would be no death. 
But let's think about that for a moment. I'd like to live in a world with no death. But in my honest moments, I realize something about myself and the awful specter of death. I realize that in a world without death, I don't think I'd be a very good person. I don't think I could trust myself. Let me explain. Let's imagine a death-free world. Stretching before us are endless years of life with no prospect of an end. What would you do? Students, how long would it take you to finish college? I think I'll just drop my classes this semester. I've got eternity to finish this silly degree. Maybe that's why we call it a deadline. I don't know. I know it's a bad pun, but it makes you think. Let's think about the way that we, we relate to one another. Much as I don't like it, I hurt other people sometimes. Well, let's imagine a world in, with we, in which we didn't die. Hey, you know, you just hurt that person's feelings. It's not like she's going to die or something. She's got eternity to get over it. No big deal. Parents, what would you do with your kids? I haven't seen them for hundreds of years. You know, we'll get back together sometime. They're taking care of themselves, not like they're going to die. I don't know that we would treasure the lives that we have, that they would have any urgency, any importance, if it weren't for the reality that we're mortal, that we're weak, that we're frail. We treasure those things that are rare. Life in our universe is amazingly rare. Human life, with the seven billion plus that we are, are is nevertheless, in the grand scheme of things, amazingly rare. And precious in part because we are frail and we are mortal. More important, would we seek God or even listen to him if he tried to tell us something, if there were no death? That could always wait for tomorrow. And there is an endless string of tomorrows in this imaginary world that I have constructed, an unlimited amount of endless time in this deathless world of our making. God told our first parents, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. The Apostle Paul told Roman Christians, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, here's the truth we don't want to admit to ourselves. First, the world is the way it is with death because of us, not because of God. Adam and Eve listened to the snake, not to God, and we can't pin the blame on them because you and I listen to the snake too. Death comes because of sin. I'm a sinner and I know it. Sooner or later, I get what I deserve. But God is rich in mercy. Even though I listen to the snake and ask for death, he urgently wants me back so he can give me life. He didn't kill Adam and Eve the moment they ate the fruit, and he didn't kill you either. He's not willing that any should die, but that all should come to repentance, that all should turn back to him. But will we listen, not with that endless string of tomorrow stretching before us, but in a world where death lurks and creeps and attacks, where there is no guarantee of a tomorrow, well, maybe in that world we will listen. 
There's the awful truth. The death I hate has everything to do with me and my stubborn, selfish rebellion against God. When I look inside, I realize that I wouldn't give the time of day to God if he didn't focus my attention with the reality that I only have a little bit of time, a few days. If I didn't live in a world where people around me get sick or old or die or get hurt in accidents or get hurt deliberately by other people, would I even listen to God? I know the answer. I know the answer to that question, hard as it is to admit. So a grieving mother may ask, are you saying that God took my child from me just to get my attention? Why didn't he make me sick if that's what he wanted? Well, that's not what we're trying to say. We can't be so glib. It may be tempting, but it's too simple and shallow to turn God into a heartless brute who takes our loved ones hostage to extract a ransom of repentance from us who remain. There's painful mystery in what we're discussing that we cannot entirely unravel. If we get too specific and precise and clinical with this, we will be wrong every time. We're not God, and we can't guess as if we were God. But this we know, sin's wage is death, and would we care about sin if that were not the case? Would I know that to live in sin is to live in spiritual death if the horror of physical death were not there? That my life is meaningless without God in it? At least we can say this, God has so arranged death that hard as we try, we can't help thinking about it. In our world made deadly by our deadly rebellion against God, by means of a deadline that God alone knows, God is bidding us to turn to him so that he can give us life. Well, the ancient saints knew this. The ancient saints of Israel knew this. God gave Abraham an appalling command to sacrifice his son Isaac. Yet Abraham could say to his servant, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship, and we will come back to you. Abraham believed somehow that the God of life could give life even in this situation that called for death. Job had lost all to death, and he sat and watched his own boil-covered body suffering pre-mortem decay. His wife told him to curse the God who allowed this terror so that he could die as well. But Job's confession was, for I know that my Redeemer lives, and the last, at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. By the inspiration of God's Spirit, Isaiah warned that Israel would suffer the death of captivity. But beyond the curse, he announced God's promise that he would bring life to his dead people. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. I wish he'd mentioned French fries there. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. How could the ancient saints have known such a thing as this under such duress? Well, they knew that the God who created life at the beginning, could not be thwarted 
at the end. They knew that the God who made people to belong to him would not fail. They knew that by his amazing grace, God is faithful to all of his people all of the time, despite the awful specter of death. And we can know that too. Our age loves to dismiss the notion of a gracious and faithful God. They look at stories like the one that we read today and say, well, that's a nice piece of folklore, but we know dead people stay dead. We fancy ourselves rationalists, empiricists, materialists, who boldly take a stand against superstition and calmly accept the reality of death as a part of life. Well, I don't buy that. I don't think anybody takes the reality of death calmly. Neither did the great American novelist, fiction writer, poet, critic, John Updike. One of his famous, widely anthologized short stories is called Pigeon Feathers. It's one of my favorites. It's about a boy of about 13 whose name is David. David is quiet and curious. His father is very different. His father sometimes rails that life is just chemicals in the right combination. Attention, chemists. Other times he complains that some everyday experience reminds him of death. David's mother has become frustrated and bitter at her disappointments. His church has taught him, unfortunately, that the stories of the Bible are quaint expressions of a primitive worldview overturned by our advanced knowledge. Well, David lives on an old farm, and one day his mother tells him to go to the barn to shoot the pigeons that have roosted there. Nervous and hesitant, he manages to kill only six. The rest fly away. His mother tells him to bury the dead birds. And this is how Updike tells the end of the story. David dug the hole in a spot, <coughs> excuse me, in a spot where there were no strawberry plants before he studied the pigeons. He had never seen a bird this close before. The feathers were more wonderful than dog's hair, for each filament was shaped with the shape of a feather, and the feathers in turn were trimmed to fit a pattern that flowed without error across the bird's body. He lost himself in the geometrical tides as the feathers now broadened and stiffened to make an edge for flight, now softened and constricted to cup warmth around the mute flesh. And around the surface of the infinitely adjusted yet somehow effortless mechanics of the feathers played idle designs of color. No two alike, designs executed, it seemed, in a controlled rapture, with a joy that hung level in the air, able and behind him. Yet these birds bred in the millions and were exterminated as pests. Into the fragrant open earth he dropped one, broadly banded in slate shades of blue, and on top of it another, modeled all over in rhythms of lilac and gray. The next was almost wholly white, but for a salmon glaze at its throat. As he fitted the last two, still pliant on the top, and stood up, crusty coverings were lifted from him. And with a feminine slipping sensation along his nerves that seemed to give the air hands, he was robed in this certainty that the God who had lavished such craft upon these worthless birds would not destroy his whole creation by refusing to let David live forever. Now, I hope you heard the echo of Jesus' words in that bit of story. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Yes, you are. 
We can cling to that, that the God who has been so extravagant in bringing life into our world will not let it be snuffed out for us. He loves us at least as much as birds. Every day of our lives, he's given us better than we deserve. Even facing death, we can trust in God. We can affirm that he is our living redeemer, and by his grace, we will see him and see one another. He is so good better than life itself. He made life. He gives life. He is faithful. But we know more, don't we? We know more. He loves us that while we were so much, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This little story of Jesus raising the son of the widow of Nain is a foreshadowing of the way that the father will raise the son to death. God raised Jesus from the dead, and Christ appeared to Peter and the twelve, and more than 501 times, and to James and all the apostles, and last of all to the apostle Paul. And because of Christ, God has given me the supreme reason to trust him. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not act also with him generously give us all things? Christ is the firstborn, from the dead, the one who will come for all of his people so that they can be with him for others, ever, so that we don't grieve like those with no hope, so that we can comfort one another with the assurance that death is not the end, not of our own lives or of our lives together. This is why Paul can taunt death. Hey, death, where's your power? Hey, death, loser, where's your sting? Death remains active and terrible and painful. And we hate it because of what it takes from us. But from the vantage of eternity, what death takes is light and momentary. What's your favorite Narnia book? We should take a poll. Mine is The Silver Chair. Now, in truth, everybody's favorite is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You've got to have that one. No, it's The Silver... Okay, all right. I knew, Maggie, you and I were like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, but, you know, The Silver Chair, truly amazing. If you're familiar with that book, um, you'll know this scene. If not, I'm going to spoil it for you, okay? At the end of the book, Eustace and Jill, the two children who are the focus of the story, have completed their adventure. But because time in our world moves different than it does in Narnia, their dear friend Caspian, the king of Narnia, who they knew as... Uh, an adolescent, is now old and has died. They are taken by the great lion Aslan, the Christ figure of the Narnia stories, to the end of the world, where they see Caspian's dead body lying in the water of a stream. Aslan tells Eustace to pluck a thorn and thrust it into Aslan's paw. paw. Reluctantly, Eustace obeys, and as the blood of the lion splashed over the dead body of Caspian, Caspian becomes young and alive again, more alive than he's ever been before. With laughter and joy, the resurrected Caspian embraces Aslan. Then he approaches Eustace. Eustace is at first frightened. Here's how the scene goes. Look here, I say, he stammered. It's all very well, but aren't you? I mean, didn't you? Hasn't he uh, died? Yes, said the lion in a very quiet voice, almost as if he were laughing. He has died. Most people have, you know. Even I have. There are very few people who haven't. Christ has gone before us in death. 
When we pray to our Lord, we pray to our Lord who knows what it is to fear death like we do, who knows what it is to lose those he loves. He wept at the tomb of Lazarus. When we pray to the Father, we pray to a Father who knows what it's like to lose a child. But we pray to a God who gives us life now and forever, not just an eternal existence, but resurrected to full life in a renewed creation together in which the endless variety of God's creation and God's people and God's goodness renews us day by day by day. So if you saw the end of the good place and are worried about being bored, forget about it. God's got you covered. This is the wonderful good news. And this means something extremely important for us. Before we knew Christ, losing our lives sounded like death. When we know Christ, we know him as the one who died to give life. We know his way is the way of life. We discover that holding our lives is what makes us dead, but giving our lives is what makes us alive. We can afford to give our lives away because nothing can take our lives from us. What can separate us from the love of Christ? Not grief or sickness or accidents or death or anything. We are more than conquerors through him who loves us. So yeah, I still hate death a lot. But daily as I grow closer to it, hourly as I encounter it again and again, God is teaching me that I find my life when in Christ's name I give my life for others as he gave his life for me. That's the life that conquers death. That's the life that I'm learning to love. So we say with Paul in 1 Corinthians, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray. Dear God, we are weak, we are frail, we are but dust, and we have rebelled against you. But in your mercy, you have invited us and called us as your people. You have raised us through your son to new life, a life that though will be interrupted in the sphere, will never end, a life that will be renewed immeasurably in the resurrection of the dead at the coming of our Lord. Lord, make this for us a reality of hope as we contemplate death, but the transformative truth of our lives as we realize that our lives have been given to us to be given away freely as the Lord gave himself for us. In his name we pray.